Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan leaders urged to fully implement the peace agreement and grenade attack kills at least two people in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. In economics, Echo Bank takes steps to reduce non-performing loans and in sports news, South African rider wins a French Moto3 Grand Prix. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The Islamic State have claimed responsibility for an attack that killed eight Egyptian policemen. The Egyptian Interior Ministry says four men shot at police officers dressed in plain clothes in the district of Helwan, south of Cairo. The four attackers pulled alongside the victim's government minivan and started shooting with automatic weapons before fleeing. Egypt's government is facing an insurgency that has killed hundreds of soldiers and policemen, mostly in northern Sinai since mid-2013 when then-Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Sisi ousted Islamist President Mohamed Morsi following mass protests. The United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Elaine Margaret Loy, has asked South Sudan's President Silva Kir and his deputy Rahik Machar to speed up the process of implementing all sections of the peace agreement they signed in August last year. Speaking at a press conference in Juba, Loy stressed the urgent need for Kir and Machar to fully implement the peace agreement. It's now incumbent on the transitional government to move with speed to complete the establishment of all the transitional institutions articulated in the peace agreement. The gun must be silent. We need to address the urgent humanitarian situation in South Sudan. The transitional government can help to ensure the free movement of humanitarian assistance, ensuring that roadblocks do not prevent vital supplies from reaching people in need. Central Africa Republic's President Faustin Akash Twadera has declared his wealth publicly. The Declaration of Assets meets the legal requirement of the Central African Republic's new constitution, which states that 30 days after his swearing in, the President-elect must make a written statement lodged at the Constitutional Court of the property he owns. Twadera was elected President during the February 14th polls. The Central African Republic suffered the worst crisis in its history in early 2000. 2013, when mainly Muslim Seleka fighters toppled former President Francois Bouzizé. The World Health Organization has raised concerns over the likelihood of the yellow fever outbreak in Angola that has killed nearly 300 people spreading to neighboring countries. The disease has now spread to the Democratic Republic of Congo and an update by the international body says the viral disease is mainly concentrated in urban centers. In a statement, the World Health Organization indicated that the Democratic Republic of Congo had 38 cases of yellow fever exported from neighboring Angola. Kenya had two and one traveller had carried it to China. And finally, the UN Secretary-General says climate action and sustainable development are a matter of survival for small island states like the Seychelles. In a speech to the country's National Assembly, Ban Ki-moon also praised the contribution these countries have made to global efforts to address climate change. He says the 17 goals are interconnected and cannot be carried out in isolation. But for island states, climate action and sustainable development are a matter of survival. They are two mutually reinforcing sides of the same coin. Storms, coastal erosion, rising sea levels, and hold and reverse sustainable development initiatives in a matter of hours or days. Well, that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time.
Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 7 and then 15255 kHz on the 19-metre band to far West Africa. Now, as South Sudan transitional government marks one week in office today, the United Nations wants President Salva Kiir and his deputy Riek Macha to move with speed to fully implement the peace agreement that the two leaders signed in August last year. James Shimangula has more. The United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Elaine Magrethe Loy, has asked President Salva Kiir and his deputy Riek Machar to speed up the process of implementing all sections of the peace agreement they signed in August last year. It is that peace agreement that paved the way for the formation of a transitional government of national unity in South Sudan, Africa's newest nation. Speaking at a press conference in Juba, the United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Elaine Magrethe Loy, stressed the urgent need for President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riek Machar to fully implement the peace agreement. It's now incumbent on the transitional government to move with speed to complete the establishment of all the transitional institutions articulated in the peace agreement. As the UN Special Envoy Eleni Loy spoke, fighting was reported in the oil-rich region of Upper Nile, north of the capital Juba. Details of the fighting remained sketchy, but Loy wants the fighting to stop. The gun must be silent. We need to address the urgent humanitarian situation in South Sudan. The transitional government can help to ensure the free movement of humanitarian assistance, ensuring that roadblocks do not prevent vital supplies from reaching people in need. UN Special Envoy in South Sudan, Eleni Loy, is pleading with the two leaders to resolve controversy over President Salva Kiir's unilateral decision to create 28 new states, a decision that angered Machar, who argued that such a creation was not in conformity with the peace agreement that the two leaders signed in August last year. There are challenges around the country in relation to how the borders have been drawn in the 28 states, and that has led to ethnic tensions in many parts of the country, First and foremost, I would uh, say that the situation in the former Upper Nile state around Malakal is particularly sensitive because of the ethnic composition of the population in that area. The area that United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Eleni Loy, is mentioning is one of Vice President Riek Machar's political and military strongholds. Loy hints at what she expects the transitional government in Juba to do now, especially to restore once and for all the issue of the unilateral decision by President Salva Kiir to create 28 states, the very creation which, according to her, is not officially recognized by the international community. So we expect the transitional government urgently to address the issue of 28 states, and in the meantime, we are not recognizing the 28 states. United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Eleni Loy, has a strong timely advice to the transitional government in Juba. I would advise all South Sudanese actors not to ask money up front, but to tell the donors and the international community what you intend to do and what your goal and policy is. That was United Nations Special Envoy in South Sudan, Eleni Loy. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Two people were killed and around 20 others wounded in gunfire and grenade explosions over the weekend in, the, in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. Police in that country say perpetrators remain unknown. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bankukira has more. One person is known to have been killed and 12 others injured in a grenade attack that occurred in Muterere neighborhood 
in the north of the capital Bujumbura. The attack occurred around 10 past 7 p.m. at the market of the neighborhood when an unknown person threw a grenade in a crowd of people. The person killed was a woman. His husband explains how the attack occurred. It was my wife. We had 10 years of marriage. Yesterday, when I arrived home from my daily activities, I gave her some money for shopping. When I saw that she was a little bit late to return home, I went to find her. When I arrived in the vicinities, I heard the grenade exploding at the market. When I went there to see what happened, I found my wife had already passed away. It's a dismay among residents of Butte who are now desperate to see the situation return to normal but in vain as they estimate the government has left them on their own. They urge a reinforcement of security. It's heartbreaking to see criminals with firearms to kill innocent people. The government should find a way to reinforce security in the country so as to arrest those criminals. They always tell us perpetrators are not known, but we know these are ill-willed people. They are not acting for the interest of the people. I think it's now time that we take security in our hands so that we arrest them. But what I would advise to those throwing grenades they should change their behavior and understand a human being is not an animal. War has never been a solution, and if they are seeking power through throwing grenades, they will gain nothing. They should change their minds and choose the right way and sit around the table of talks so as to know the right way of reaching power, not through violence and killing people. This is a despicable act. We need our authorities to remain watchful. It's really unfortunate that we be attacked as we are in search for our life. An attack against us even in the market while we are not politicians. This is too bad. We are here to fight for the survival of our children. We are less concerned with these stories of grenades. We had them elsewhere, not here in Bukereri. Another person was killed in the southern neighborhood of Musaga in a gunfire reported on Saturday night. There also, the identity of the perpetrators remains unknown. A day before, another grenade occurred in the neighboring Kinama neighborhood on Friday night, injuring eight people for being in critical condition. Police says to be on its feet to track down all criminals and bring them to justice. Moise Nkunziza, deputy police spokesman, calls all citizens to remain vigilant, urging local leaders to strengthen security measures so as to stop all troublemakers before committing the revels. Les forces de l'ordre sont à l'œuvre pour traquer ces criminels afin de les traduire devant. Security forces are working hard to track down those criminals and bring them to justice. The security ministry urges everyone to remain vigilant because the police cannot be everywhere and we urge authorities to strengthen joint security committees so as to control movements of people and report any suspicious person in order to stop them before they commit the irreparable. Burundi, particularly the capital Bujumbura, remains the scene of violence of various forms since the breakout of the crisis in the country last year. Gunfire, grenade explosions in gathering places, targeted killings against prominent governmental and military authorities, this is what residents of Bujumbura are becoming familiar to since almost a year now as the government remains reluctant to sit with its opponents to resolve the crisis. In the meantime, Burundians are desperately waiting for the resumption of dialogue that was to begin on May 2nd, but postponed by the mediation for reasons not yet explained until now. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. Women must be equal partners in peace efforts if post-election societies are to move forward. That's according to gender advisors at 14 UN peacekeeping missions who met recently in Entebbe, Uganda. Claire Hutchinson is a gender advisor at the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York. She talks about how their work is aimed at ensuring women's voices are heard both inside and outside UN peacekeeping missions. So our work primarily is to make sure that women are engaged in our processes, that we have comparative look between women and men at whatever activities we do, be it military, police or civilian, and that the highest levels of mission take the responsibility to make sure that 
these activities of gender advisors are taken into account. So you're more like towards inside than outside? The responsibility of every peacekeeping mission is to make sure that everyone within the mission understands their role in terms of equality. And then we work 20% outside the mission with civil society, with partners, with our UN colleagues, to make sure that we are reaching out into the very communities we are deployed to protect. So we have to make sure that women from the outside are engaged. The biggest challenge is the lack of understanding that women and men are equal but different and that you have to integrate women's voices as clearly and as concretely into all of the work we do. It's still not quite understood. It's still believed that gender is a separate issue, that it's an add-on, and that it, it's not necessarily a critical component of conflict analysis. We're trying to overcome that and get to a point where it will become the responsibility of all missions. And what is your message? Our message ultimately is that you know the role of women in all aspects of peacekeeping missions and all aspects of society is critical. That you can't have sustainable peace unless you have women involved in every part of society. And you can't have any protection of women without participation of women. And that is ultimately the message of gender, that we are equal partners in all of this. And to move forward with peace, we have to recognize it. That was Claire Hutchinson, Gender Advisor at the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York, speaking to UN Radio's Ratomir Petrovich. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Allocation of power to Chapter 9 institutions and leaders' failure to respect the Constitution are some of the stumbling blocks that South Africa face 22 years into democracy. This was said at the foundation of the Supreme Law Conference on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the South African Constitution in Johannesburg. The report is aimed at honoring those who suffered for justice and freedom in the country. Horisane Sitole compiled this report. A number of people who took part in the drafting of the Constitution attended the event. Public protector Tulima Donsela says one of the things that is still lacking in the country is the allocation of powers when it comes to Chapter 9 institutions. The one area where we need to improve regarding the guarding of the guardians is the area that I call the problem of pre-constitution thinking. Nobody has ever considered that it's wrong that the Minister of Justice speaks for the public protector in Parliament. 22 years into democracy, that's grossly unconstitutional. Recently, we were looking for money from finance, and finance said to us, we need to look for that money from the Department of Justice. But we investigated the Department of Justice. The public protector is an executive authority exactly at the same level as a minister of justice, but she or he has to get her money from the minister of justice. Matansela says, although there's a constitutional review commission, she doesn't believe that the commission has been empowered enough. She says... Parliament seems to revert back to the apartheid way of doing things. For example, opening a parliament, the funny thing is that the public protector and others sit there as visitors. Just show how apartheid is still with us without us thinking about it. So up there is for people who are visiting. Down there is people who are part of the state. But we've kept those who are part of the apartheid state down there. The new entities that are part of the new state that were not in the apartheid architecture, they are visitors upstairs there. When we announce people arriving who are part of the state, we announce them. You never announce chapter nines because the architecture remained what we found. Institutions such as the Human Rights Commission and the Public Protector have been set up to help ensure that constitutional rights of individuals are not violated. Former constitutional court judge and anti-apartheid activist Justice Zeg Yacoub says, the problem arises when the same people who are supposed to guard the Constitution are the ones who violate it. The guardian of the Constitution are the people of our country. The honest, trustworthy, because those who are not morally upright or corrupt or dishonest will never be able to guard our Constitution. The judges are not a law unto themselves. In the nature of things, everybody who loses a case will be unhappy. 
So in the ANC lose the case, they're very unhappy. When the government loses the case, they're very unhappy and they ask all sorts of awkward questions. The question has been asked, why can't the judiciary be corrupt? National Council of Provinces Chairperson Dandi Mudisa says the constitution sometimes creates problems where it doesn't warrant them enough power to hold the executive accountable. The constitution, beautiful as it is, sometimes does create problems. We, sometimes better than anybody else, can tell you what is happening in province X and province Y. We are able to bring in the speakers and say, but we're not doing your job here and here and there. But we do not have the big stick to bring the executive to account. Cooperative Governance Deputy Minister Andres Nell, former presidential spokesperson Mark Maharaj, and first Senate of the Federal Constitutional Court of Germany, Justice Reinhard Gaia, are some of the people who attended the event. For SABC News, I'm Horizane Sitol in Johannesburg. With the abundant fertile soils, water and human resource spread across Africa, farmers and other experts believe there should be no one dying of hunger on the continent. Governments and other support agencies have been urged to do more to support farmers to produce more food and farmers have been encouraged to embrace new methods of agriculture in order to rid the dominance of hunger. These sentiments came up during the 2016 Farmers Organization General Assembly held in the Zambian town of Livingston. Hilda Akekelwa has more. The General Assembly was held under the theme Partnerships for Growth with a view to promote the importance of a holistic approach to the agricultural sector where different actors stand together for the same goal to implement sustainable food systems, ensure that farmers of the world gain an effective position in the food chain, look after the environment, implement the Sustainable Development Goals and the Agenda 2030. Addressing the delegates, Zambia's Agricultural Minister Given Lovinda said with increasing climate change effects and high costs of farming on the continent, it is time food producers took advantage of technology and other modern methods of doing business. We need to change the way we are farming. We need to change the way that we are feeding ourselves. Globally, agriculture needs solutions and innovations to weather down and adapt to climate change-induced adverse weather conditions. We need to embrace and invest in appropriate farming technologies and climate-smart agriculture. We have to do this if we are to be able to grow more with less. If we are to feed an ever-increasing population, we ought to be more innovative. With all ICT advances around us, we have little choice but to help farmers realize that continued reliance on outdated technologies cannot lead to increased productivity and their growth. But that adoption of appropriate mechanization appropriate husbandry technologies, e-payments, and other e-services is what will unlock the growth potential of agriculture. This should further be enhanced by the promotion of appropriate irrigation and agro-processing and value addition technologies across the food value chains. In his comments, World Farmers Organization board member representing the African region, Mr. Charles Ogang, said the meeting also agreed on the need for smallholder farmers on the continent to begin to focus on producing for the outside market so as to generate incomes for themselves and their families. We still have a challenge of bringing this other smallholder farmer who are just targeting something to eat and not mindful of what we can gain out of the, the, labor, the labor they are putting on. The focus is now produced for the market. Eventually, they will improve their income because whatever they will get out of what they produce will take more money. The issue of climate change and the role of farmers as agents of solutions was also topic for discussion. This follows the successful global agreement on climate change in Paris in December last year and the recent signing in New York 
calling for an ambitious, inclusive, fair, durable and dynamic commitment for mitigating climate change impacts. WFO Board Vice President William Ralston from New Zealand said farmers are on the front line of the climate change agenda and are directly impacted. He encouraged resilient, small-scale and family farmers to develop and implement innovative agricultural practices such as agroecology and new biotechnology approaches. We can, we can mitigate uh, livestock, for example, and, and, uh, and cropping effects on, on climate change uh, using good technology. This is a meeting that brought together farmers, small and big, as well as representatives from farmers' organizations across the globe. I spoke to some small-scale farmers. Sakina Mukaver. From? Mozambique. What have you gotten out of this conference? I've seen is that the Zambian government is giving a lot of importance on putting a lot of importance on agriculture agenda. So uh, we found it very important because we felt that we are together with our governments in Africa. Yeah, I'm a fish farmer and a vegetable grower. That if we administer our uh, groups properly, if we manage our finances, manage our people properly, we will make a lot of growth. We've also been told about the chain value, the financials, partner with buyers. That is also another huge step for all the farmers. At the end of it all, WFO President Evelyn Muleka said after all the discussions, it was clear that many farmers, especially the smallholder farmers, need partnerships. Everybody acknowledge the importance of having partnerships. As the World Farmer Organization, we recognize that it is important for our farmers to have access to land. And it is important for each and every country to try and see how others have dealt with the issues of land so that our farmers feel secure. We believe that for us to be able to feed the 8 million people that go hungry every day, we need to enhance these technologies. And we have accepted that there are certain uh, places, there are certain areas where technology has not yet been adopted and therefore we have re resolved that it is important for us to exchange information, to see what others are doing between farmers' organizations so that we can be able to produce enough food for this planet. But of course, very importantly, what we have concluded is the farmer's survival is critical. As much as we want to save the planet, we also realize that the farmer's welfare, that is, the profitability of the farmer, should also be taken care of. The next World Farmers Organization General Assembly will be held in Finland in June next year. I am Hilda Kekera reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, 
Tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, the Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition presidential candidate Moise Katumbi is expected to appear before a prosecutor to respond to accusations that he hired foreign mercenaries. The Islamic State have claimed responsibility for an attack that killed eight Egyptian policemen and the World Health Organization has raised concerns over the likelihood of the yellow fever outbreak in Angola that has killed nearly 300 people spreading to neighboring countries. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine. As the global community prepares to mark the 2016 Move for Health Day tomorrow, the World Health Organization is urging people to be active and beat diabetes. The annual international event was created in 2002 by the UN Health Body to promote physical activity. Diabetes is characterized by an increased level of sugar in the blood. Over time, this causes life-threatening complications, including the failure of vital organs like the heart and kidneys. For more on this... Dr. Shanil Naidu, medical director at the pharmaceutical company Boeringer Engelham, South Africa. Physical activity or lack of physical activity is directly linked to the development of type 2 diabetes. So that part we know. But what most people fail to be cognizant of is that diabetes is associated with many, many side effects. It's the leading cause of blindness in working age adults. It's the leading cause of kidney failure in adults. There's a massive increase in cardiovascular death and and heart attacks and strokes. It's the leading cause of non-traumatic amputations. So people have to understand the seriousness of it in order for them to make the lifestyle changes that are necessary to avoid those complications I spoke of. Do you think that technology, amongst other things, has made it easy for us not to move? Look, I will say this, that you have a lot more kids that are playing video games that are having more sedentary lifestyles and a lot more adults are involved with more sedentary lifestyles. But there's another aspect to it. In the current generation, the exposure to information has increased exponentially. So it's a matter of us as being in the media to provide them with the right amount of information in the tools that they have access to. So if you spoke about things like the Let's Move campaign, if you look at things that have work towards increasing people's exercise, improving their diet. The dissemination of that information in the past was slow. Now we have opportunities to increase the rate at which that information is disseminated. So it's a yes and a no. Yes, it's a bad thing if it keeps you on the couch. Then it's a great thing if it gives you the information to get off that couch. How big of a public health concern is diabetes in South Africa? And are there any strides that have been made in the fight against the disease over the years? Let me start with the continent. If I were to focus on Africa, right now we've got about 14 million people that have diabetes in sub-Saharan Africa. Now that number is going to increase to about 34 million people in the next 25 years. So in terms of region-wise, we are the region that will experience the greatest percentage increase in type 2 diabetes. And there's a multitude of factors and that also affects South Africa as well. There are other health concerns like HIV, which have come to the forefront, and the other non-communicable illnesses like cardiovascular illness, like type 2 diabetes, have kind of gone into the background. So we have made great strides in healthcare, but not so much when it comes to type 2 diabetes and other 
non-communicable illnesses. So, and the same is applicable in South Africa. We're heading in the right direction, but we're not there yet. Please tell our listeners out there, doctor, about some of the warning signs and risk factors of diabetes that they need to be aware of. Okay, so you have the one that people know about, have heard of, and can't be stressed enough, is the increased thirst and urination. Those are big ones. There's also increased fatigue. There's a loss of weight initially, despite eating more than usual. So this sounds odd when I say that it's a loss of weight initially. So you have the body's inability to utilize the glucose, its inability to store the glucose properly. So what happens is it starts to find sources to feed itself. So that's why there's an initial loss of weight and then thereafter it picks up. But what we need to be aware of is that these symptoms start to develop in the latter part of type 2 diabetes. And allow me to explain. Type 2 diabetes develops over four to seven years. So this increased thirst and the urination to a point of where people are aware of it doesn't happen in the first few years, one or two years. They start to notice it much, much later, at which point they have type 2 diabetes. It's the early signs that people seem to be not really taking note of. And the major early sign, really early on, is the increase in weight. It's the lack of exercise, the poor diet, especially when it comes to abdominal obesity. Those are the early signs where you need to start preventing the development of full-blown type 2 diabetes. Now, as the global community prepares to mark World Move for Health Day, what other issues do you wish to highlight about diabetes and, of course, the importance of physical activity for our health and wellness? There are many, many, many good treatment options out there. The first part of call is not knowing that there are treatment options out there, is to know if you have type 2 diabetes. So go and have yourself checked out. Look at your fasting glucose. See if you're at risk of having type 2 diabetes. And most importantly, before you're at risk, get yourself active. Get out there. Make it a fun activities to have with your families, healthy food, you know, group activities, exercise. And that will stop you from developing one of the most dangerous illnesses there are out there. South Africa's Minister of Tourism, Derek Hanekom, says when tourism succeeds, Africa will succeed. He says African countries need to take advantage of their authentic and meaningful experiences to help grow tourism on the continent for the benefit of its people. He was speaking during the official opening of Indaba, the annual tourism trade show organized by South Africa's tourism taking place in Durban, Guazulu-Natal province in South Africa. Channel Africa's Ndlandla Mahlangu filed this report. Indaba is the biggest tourism trade show on the African continent and it brings together hundreds of people from across the tourism value chain such as exhibitors, buyers as well as the media. The 2016 edition of Indaba has its theme, putting you at the forefront of business success, and it has brought together over a thousand exhibitors to showcase their businesses, have meetings and do speed marketing and engage buyers, amongst others. Speaking at the official opening, South Africa's Tourism Minister Derek Heinekom says Africa has what it takes to take advantage of the opportunities that tourism offers. As tourism succeeds, ladies and gentlemen, the continent succeeds and millions of people benefit from this success. Tourism in South Africa and in Africa is on the brink of a new success story. Some of the challenges we experienced in South Africa last year resulted, as you all know, in dwindling tourism numbers. That is now behind us, and we are experiencing nothing short of spectacular growth in our tourist arrivals. All indications are that 2016 will be a bumper year for tourism in South Africa. In fact, tourism is poised for growth across Africa. The United Nations World Tourism Organization estimates that international tourist arrivals will grow by 4% this year. Tourist arrivals in Africa are expected to reach 130 million people by 2030. That is more than double. 50 million arrivals we are currently receiving. Investment in tourism across Africa is making tourism a key economic driver. 
The MEC for KwaZulu-Natal Department of Economic Development, Tourism and Environmental Affairs, Mike Mabuyakulu, says tourism is a key contributor to the country's economy as well as job creation. He says the hosting of Indaba, which is now in its 36th year, has several benefits for the province. So for us, the benefit is that we now have grown to know how to host this very premier and African trade show, and we've got a team of people that work with South African tourism in ensuring that Indaba continues to grow year on year. And as I say to you, this year we will be having more than a thousand exhibitors, more than 1,600 various buyers, more than 500 media people, and. Uh, and clearly proves beyond any doubt that we have uh, a, a trade show that is growing to become among some of the top trade shows in the world, such as the WTM, the ITB in Berlin, and here in Daba is as a Pan-African Premier Trade Show. More than a thousand exhibitors, which include tour operators, hotel representatives, as well as tourism authorities, amongst others, are showcasing their products. Freeney Head from Care and Downey in Botswana is one of them. So we are offering a superior wildlife experience so you can go out into our areas doing game drives, night drives, boating, fishing, coraling, walking. They're all on offer from our camps. We're always partaking in Indaba. It's a good opportunity to see a lot of our industry friends and those that we do business with. Our main market is from the UK, Germanic-speaking Europe, the US, Australia, Canada. Uh, but a lot of these agents are working through DMCs that are based in South Africa. So although our guests are international guests, most of the business does have some flow through South Africa. Frank Grimot is from Alikanga, a destination management company which has offices in Johannesburg, South Africa. We've got our sales office also in France and we're organizing tours for the French-speaking market, for the South American market and for all thousand countries in, um, in Africa. I've been at Indaba for 15 years now to meet our suppliers, to also we've got our clients from overseas coming. So it's just a place to meet suppliers and clients. This year, yeah, South Africa is increasing thanks to the exchange rate with the rents, if you compare to the euro for the European market. And so, yeah, there's a huge boost in terms of tourism. So everybody's quite happy. The event will close later today. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tantama Shangu in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal province of South Africa. Mountain areas of the world are crucial for the survival of the planet and also home to some of the poorest and hungriest communities on Earth. That's the stark assessment of Thomas Hoffer, who is the mountains and water team leader for the Food and Agriculture Organization. A new FAO report on the vulnerability of mountain peoples to food insecurity being presented at UN headquarters on Friday shows that conditions have deteriorated rapidly with one and two routinely going hungry. Hoffer outlines the complex challenges facing mountain dwellers and their increasingly vulnerable environment. The results of this report are really alarming. So what it shows is that if you look at developing country mountain areas, every third person is potentially food insecure. And the global average is one in eight so one in three in mountain areas of developing countries. And if we just take the rural mountain areas, it's even more alarming. It's almost every second person is potentially food insecure. And this has grown uh, exponentially since the beginning of the century, hasn't exactly. it? Exactly. So there is evidence that in absolute figures from 2000 to 2012, there is an increase of 30% of people which are vulnerable to food insecurity. And why is this? What's the main reason for that? Yeah. There are many, many reasons. And the study, you know, we, this is a work which needs to continue now to be able to identify much better the, the reasons. But there are a number of reasons. Some of them are, have to do with the mountain environment, harsh environments. There are issues of, of slope, there are issues of altitude, of temperature. But the other thing is also that mountain areas are in many cases, especially in countries where mountain areas are a part of the territory only, they are often not considered in national policy making. So mountain areas often lack access to education, lack access to health services. They're forgotten in a sense. Exactly, lack access even to markets. 
because they are far away, they are remote, difficult to, to reach. And has it also got worse because of geopolitics? I mean, you, know, you think, for example, of those, those mountainous countries where conflict has become a sort of almost a norm, places like yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. That's a very important point, you know, that there are, is evidence that quite a large proportion of the conflicts today, they are somewhere in mountain regions. And the, the sad fact is that in many cases, these conflicts are happening because the borders are in mountain regions and it's big geopolitical tensions, but the mountain people living there, they are not, have nothing to do with these conflicts, but they are, the, they are affected. No? They are basically the, the victims of the conflict, although they don't have anything to do with it. There is another part, obviously, to, to, to this increase is the climate change impacts. There is evidence that mountain areas are disproportionately affected by climate change. Everybody knows about the retreat of glaciers, yes, but there are other issues which are very important. They are not well buffered to changes. So climate change has an impact on, on cropping systems, natural hazards. So what needs to be done and by who? There is a mismatch, you know. There is the fact that mountain areas have a global importance, no? We talked about for, uh, water before. We should also talk about biodiversity. So 60 to 80% of the world's freshwater resources come from mountains. One quarter of the Earth's terrestrial biodiversity is in mountains. So that's one area where it's very clear that for the survival of, of the planet, mountain areas are crucial because of these environmental services. On the other hand, this neglect of mountain areas. So there is a mismatch. Now, usually you would say, okay, those areas which are fundamental for the survival, that's where you would put most attention. And that's not what is happening right now. No? So what is needed is really um, a change of perception of mountain areas, of being far away, of being scenic areas, of being touristic areas, to the perception that these are areas of vital importance for the world which need very specific attention. So tell us what the mountain facility is. This, is. this is one solution, I believe, that you're coming up with at FAO. With this report we have published now, with the SDGs now being there to be implemented, we want to increase the pace for mountain areas. And that's what the facility is about. So the facility which we launched, in fact, two weeks ago in, in Rome, has the idea to be a mechanism, a funding mechanism to support countries, support partners in areas of climate change adaptation, in promotion of mountain-specific products, because they are often specific products which have a very high value on the market because they are organic and so on. So mountain products improve natural resources management. And the facility is a, is a mechanism which is very flexible, you know, so we hope we will receive funding in this, in this um, facility, partly unearmarked, which would allow us to really respond to important requests coming from members from different parts of the world to support them in their endeavor. And ultimately, hopefully, to make sure that this change in perception and this paradigm shift will ultimately happen. That was Thomas Hofer, Mountains and Water Team Leader for the Food and Agriculture Organization, speaking to you and radio's Matthew Wells. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has signed the delayed 2016 budget into law, ending weeks of wrangling with lawmakers. The 30.6 billion US dollar budget is an attempt by Africa's top oil exporter to stimulate an economy hammered by the fall in crude oil prices. Oil sales make up about 70% of national income. The International Monetary Fund's latest regional economic outlook for sub-Saharan Africa predicts a second difficult year as the region is hit by multiple shocks. One of those is the severe drought experienced in many countries. Head of the Regional Studies Division in the IMF's African Department, Celine Allard. First, you know, what's important and, and quite worrisome is that some 40 to 50 million people might be at risk of food insecurity by the end of the year. So this is really of a, of a very large magnitude. And to go back to your question, beyond those very high human and social costs that we see, um, there are also broader macroeconomic impacts. 
More than 20 Japanese investors and Japan International Cooperation Agency representatives are expected to visit Rwanda on Monday to explore investments, opportunities and strategic partnerships ahead of the World Economic Forum Africa Summit in Kigali next week. The investors are accompanying the JICA Vice President Hiroshi Kato and Mayor, City of Kobe in Japan, Kizo Hisamoto. They are also representing various sectors, including ICT, among others. The Kenyan government is set to introduce more secure standardization marks for bottled water in a bid to fight rising supply of substandard products in the market. Kenya Bureau of Standards has classified water as a high-risk product due to increased illicit trade. Kebs has so far closed 84 water bottling plants, which have been processing water that do not meet set quality standards. Ugandan small-scale farmers say the focus of the 2016 17 agriculture budget should be availing enough money to provide water for irrigation and employ more extension workers across the country. Presenting their position on agriculture financing to the Parliamentary Committee on Agriculture last week under the umbrella body, Eastern and Southern Africa Small Scale Farmers Forum Uganda. Government said it was getting it wrong to think that distributing seeds under the Operation Wealth Creation Initiative will solve the low production capacity at a time when climate change is having its toll on farming. The farmers say the move will help them to produce good harvest despite the prolonged droughts that have had negative impact on the agricultural sector. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.83 in South Africa, 10.75 in Botswana, 9.78 in Zambia, 69 British pound, 87 euro. Looking at the commodities markets, so platinum 1070 dollars, so platinum one two, uh, gold rather, one two eight four dollars an ounce. Brand crude four five dollars nine zero cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. I'm Tabiso Nkoko. Thank you, Tabiso. A sports update up next with Figilelingwati. In our sports update, star started Tipi Mazembe needed 94 minutes to break the resistance of African rookie Stade Gabesien and win the CAF Confederations Cup playoff 1-0 in Lubumbashi on Sunday. Striker Jonathan Bolingi scored after a corner in the southern mining city to give the Democratic Republic of Congo club a narrower than expected advantage over the Tunisian opponents. The match winner is the 21-year-old son of Mbangi Merigani, the former DR Congo goalkeeper who played for leading Kinshasa side daring club Mutema Pembe. And South African Premier side Mamelodi Sundowns have taken a giant step towards qualifying for the CAF Confederations Cup group stages after beating Madiema Sporting Club from Ghana in a comeback 3-1 victory in the playoff first league match played at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Pretoria at the weekend. Coach Pizzo Musimani says the first half was the worst he has seen from his team and therefore decided to give his players silent treatment during the break. It's unbelievable. I've never seen a 45 minutes like that. First one ever since I'm, I'm the coach of Mamilori Sundance. I've never seen my team play like that in 45 minutes. But you must understand also, these people are human beings. They are still celebrating. They won their league. It was very difficult. And you guys, I think some of you asked me, how are you going to take the team up? after a celebratory mood and when you play to confederation cup a less fancy one coming out of the champions league so it was, it was just the mind it was just the mentality you know and you won't believe it at half time i never said one word never coached one word nothing and in rugby news south african rugby side shacks director of rugby gary gold admits that he is impressed with the good performance put in by his team in their 32 15 win over the Hurricanes in the Vodacom Super Rugby match played at the Growth Point Kings Park at the weekend. Gold is particularly pleased with the rugby his team played with ball in hand and how they managed the game as well. Yeah, I think it was a very good performance, um, mostly because of uh, the quality of the opposition, who I thought uh, were equally good today. I thought they asked a lot of questions with the ball in hand. Um, I think they'll just feel that they didn't convert a couple of opportunities, but yeah, really happy with... Um, we're happy with our, our game management, um, the way we, what our plan was this week against them. I think um, 
I think worked quite nicely. So really happy with that. Just felt at halftime we needed to be patient in a very close game. And uh, yeah, proud of the guys, how, they, how hard they worked in the second half to get the victory. Yvette Fancel continued her dominance of the Spa Women's 10km series when she won the Port Elizabeth race in tough conditions on Saturday. Michael Flismas reports. Running through gale force wind gusts and a bit of rain, Fonsal won in a time of 33 minutes and 28 seconds to claim a victory in the windy city that she's been chasing since her junior days. Today I was surprised that I didn't feel that bad that I thought. I thought I'm going to feel much worse and the conditions didn't play with actually. But yeah, I was just happy coming over that line and winning my first PE Spa Ladies. It's really special. I never won this race before in all the years from junior years that I've ran. So I'm really happy. So I couldn't believe it when I crossed the line. So yeah. <laughs> Lebuhang Palula finished second in a time of 34 minutes and 9 seconds, while her twin sister Diana Lebu was third one second behind her. Michael Flismas, Port Elizabeth. In our sports update, that's all we have time for now. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South Sudan leaders urged to fully implement the peace agreement and grenade attack kills at least two people in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutso Ramagadza and Khomutso Mopulane, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa as USA for Africa with a song titled We Are the World. So we all must lend a helping